Most scripts can tell a decent story with an interesting plot, but not every script can leave a lasting impression on readers or viewers. It's probably why some of our favourite lines from TV or film have made their way into our everyday vocabulary. A strong case to support the idea that screenwriters are one of the most valuable parts of every screenplay. I'm your host, Yolanti Falhinmi, a journalist who advocates for innovation and storytelling, and this is Black Prose, the podcast where black writers talk amongst themselves. In this episode, I'll be talking to award-winning screenwriter, director, producer, and retired playwright Abraham Adeyemi. He's never been to a film school, but entered and won Soho House's scriptwriting competition, Script House, and made his directorial debut with his short film, No More Wings. It has since gone on to be a massive success, most notably winning the Best Narrative Short at the Tribeca Film Festival and qualifying for both BAFTA and Oscar consideration. He's also the founder of production company Creative Blue Balls and has just wrapped up the filming of his new short film, Chasing the Night, with Film 4. Well, I think the first place we should start is Chasing the Night. In August 2021... I had just come back from holiday from Antigua and I was on my agent's case about needing work and he said something to me which actually surprised me, which was he felt like I needed to make another short film because I was being considered for a lot of directing roles, getting to the final like two or three or whatever and it goes to the other person. And in all those situations, the other person was of course more experienced. Mm. And I remember being really annoyed about this, but then I was like, also I was like, okay, well, fine. Then it turned into probably two weeks of frustration because I like to think that I'm quite good at analysing my work. And so for as good as my previous short film, No More Wings, is, it is set in one location, which is known as a chamber piece. So it's set in this one location. It's got four characters, but really it's two characters. And it's very limited. And to go from that to shooting a TV series, for example, I can understand why a commissioner, a producer might not think that go for this guy as opposed to the potentially safer option who has more credits and has done more. So what led my idea creation in that situation was the first thing I started to think about was, okay, I need a piece that's going to have more characters. I need a piece that's going to have more locations, blah, blah, all of that. And I don't like writing like that. I don't like writing to tick boxes. I like writing because I just want to tell a story and what is the story I want to tell. And so... The one consistent thing I'd been saying to a lot of people for quite a few months is that I wanted to write about love. And I couldn't think about what I wanted to write. And then if you fast forward to the 27th of August, and that date's only in my mind because it came up last week, um, I got a rejection for something and I was really frustrated about it. And I phoned my producer. What did you get rejected for? The BFI have something called Network at London Film Festival where they pick, I believe, 12 um, filmmakers they do a weekend during the film festival where you have these masterclasses and all of this stuff. I've applied a number of times, which is a recurring theme in my career that I've applied for things multiple times and been rejected for these same things multiple times. And then with some of them, one day I get them. But I'd got this rejection. And I think the disappointment for me with that rejection was, it was that I didn't even make the interview stage. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Mm. Like, I didn't make the, in- like, and I was really upset about it. And my producer 
who's also a very good friend of mine, Abiola Rufai, who I've worked with for many, many years. And she was working at the BFI at the time in the department that deals with that. So she knew already that I hadn't, but she hadn't said nothing to me. And I wasn't upset with her. She's not meant to, that's her job. I think the shortlist was 36 and then they picked 12. So I'm like, I didn't even make it onto a shortlist of 36. Like, really? Like, I've just done this short film. It's done really well at festivals. I've got a feature film in development with Film Flight. How am I not enough? And so I called Abby, quite upset about it, and just kind of feeling really down in the dumps about my career and which is out of character as was said to me by Abby and she was like hey but I don't like hearing you like this but then she followed that up with tough love which is like you have 24 hours to wallow and then get your shit together and you know figure out some finger out a new idea so Friday night I'm still at home turn on Netflix and decide to watch this film called really love I got 10 minutes into the film and I just paused it because all of a sudden I had this idea and I phoned Abby immediately and I'm like, Abby, I've got an idea. I've, I've come up with something. And I, I said to her, so the working title for this piece is going to be called The Long Goodbye. But we can't call it The Long Goodbye because Riz Ahmed's done a short film called The Long Goodbye that's really good and I reckon it's going to win an Oscar. And it did six months later. And I was like, but it's about these two people and they're chasing the night. And, and Abby's like, Abe, stop there. I don't know what the story is, but that is your title. That is a great title. I was like, oh yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, let's go with that. And so that was how it came about. It was born from frustration. But the most beautiful thing about it is that the idea came organically. And even though the idea ticks all of those boxes, the idea didn't come with the desire or intention to tick those boxes. It came because it was a story I wanted to tell. And thankfully, it also did tick the boxes. So what is the process with having an idea, writing mm, a script, yeah, and then... Because now you filmed it. So what is the process? Yeah. So in 2020, when I agreed, verbally agreed, my feature film deal with Film 4, in the same breath, they said to me, by the way, Abe, if you ever feel like making another short film, let us know, we'll fund it. I'm like, all right, cool. Don't think I want to make another short film, but it's good to know. Why are you opposed to making another short film? Is there a particular reason? Two reasons. One, I didn't have another story that I was particularly desperate to tell via the medium of shorts. I actually love short films. I love making them. I like writing them, watching them. And I and I always want to keep making them as well because I think it's a nice quick way to say something as opposed to the lengthy period of feature in TV. And so it's because I didn't have anything I wanted to say and also because all the opportunities that were coming my way were feature and TV. So... It was that feeling of, oh, okay, I've graduated to the next step of, you know, I need to commit my time to that now and not not making shorts. So I was like, yeah, okay, whatever, thanks, but, you know, ready to do that and carry on learning and carry on growing. So when this idea came, the next step of the process was letting film fall know this, which took a while, but I started writing the script. And as I'm writing the first draft of the script, when I write, I don't, really tend to think of actors. I just think this is a story I want to tell. But every now and then, I'll be writing something, I'm like, this is who has to play this role. And in that case, the person in question was Shopper Derisu, who is the lead in Gangs of London. And so I sent Shopper a text. This is when I was dreaming of shooting it in the same year. Writing in October, thinking I'm going to shoot in December. Shopper, what are you doing in December? Like, are you available? And he's like, mm, depends what for. Like, I'm, I'm technically busy, but if you've got something for me, then it depends what it is. I'm like, okay, cool. Send them the first draft of the short film. Wait to hear back from him. 
by the time I hear back from him, I've already written a second draft. And he's like, oh, if you've written a second draft, I'm not going to tell you what I think. Just send me the second draft. He reads that and he says, all right, everything I was going to say in terms of the notes and critique, you've actually solved it. I'm like, okay, cool. So you're going to do the film. And he goes, who's going to play the actress? And I say, I don't know yet. He's like, okay, when I know who the actress is, I'll tell you if I'm going to do it. And um, fast forward to December, I was at an award ceremony, the British Independent Film Awards, and I see Max Park from Film 4, who is my development exec or development producer. I don't know what they all do, but my people. Those are just <laughs> my people who deal with me at Film 4. And I see Max, and I'm like, Max, remember when you and Ben said to me that if wanted to make another short film, you'd find it? He goes, yeah. I was like, okay, I want it. He's like, okay, we'll do it. I was like, I've not told you what it's about. He's like, yeah, it does matter, like we said, and we believe in you, we believe in your work, we'll do it. And I'm like, oh, okay. And it just so happens, Chopper's nearby. I'm like, oh, and Chopper's going to play the lead. And Chopper's <laughs> like, who's the actress? I'm like, I don't know yet. I don't know who the actress is. And at this point, Film 4 have now said, verbally said yes to the short film. But they don't concretely say yes until May 2022. And that, I, I'll never know the reason why, other than it's just all in-house procedures. Maybe it's to do with the tax year, who knows. But they finally said yes. And so that's how... It went from, I have this idea, to we're making this film. Yeah. We were meant to shoot in July. Um, and what yeah. happened? It got postponed. It did get postponed. I was very upset. Actually, no, I wasn't upset. I was at peace, but slightly upset. But it got postponed six days before we were meant to shoot. But I remember at the time saying something, and I actually posted it on Instagram because I read the caption the other day, about how I just felt very certain that because of this postponing, it will only make the film better. And it 100% did like it took it to another level, yeah. And so we had Chopper, Deborah Ayurinde, who plays the lead actress, and she's the lead in Riches on ITV and, and Amazon, and them in, on Amazon as well. It was very, very long and difficult to find this actress. And whenever I say that, people assume it's because I auditioned lots of people, and I was like, no, I only ever reached out to one person and offered it to them, which was Deborah. It's because I was really particular about what I wanted and who I wanted and when I decided that it was Deborah who I wanted my casting director reached out to her oh no not to her sorry to her agent who read the script said love the scripts but I don't think a short will be for her right now I read this email and I was like what do you mean how can you decide for your client <laughs> whether it's for them it's for them to decide and you know something that I think is really pertinent is that we, and by we I mean black people, we understand the importance and significance of our craft and our story and our stories, sorry, and our work in a way that people outside of our community can't really understand. And, you know, the agent was just doing their job and the agent is just thinking, this is a short film, there's no money in it, and also client is high and flying and doing all these great things you know she doesn't have time for this what did you mean by black writers or black people understanding what our craft means to our community so the black british cinematic canon is very limited and that's not because the talent isn't there it's because of the way the system has been set up and things have been and are changing and continuing to change and I think people outside of the industry 
it will take them longer to see it than someone like me who's obviously inside and I can see all the projects that are in development and in production and get to read scripts and stuff like that. But these stories have always been there. Like, there are a lot of Black British writers who are older than me who have been in the industry for long and they've always been trying to tell these stories they just weren't getting the opportunities and it's because of their hard work that people like me mm. are finding it easier and so with these actors who know this work exists who want to do it that's why they'll say yes to a short film because they know that this if this short film doesn't happen how are we going to get the features and the tv of these things because no one's commissioning them because they don't believe in them but then all of a sudden you have a short film of a certain type that might do well and now all of a sudden people are like oh we should be making features like this we should be making tv like this and so with all of that and me being me and not taking no for an answer <laughs> i have a wonderful friend like a big brother called Zach Momo, who's an actor as well. And I call up Zach knowing that him and Deborah were in a film together called Harriet, um, the Harriet Tubman biopic. I'm like, Zach, I need Deborah in my film. I just need her to read the script. After that, it's whatever, but she's not read the script and the person should be allowed to make their decision themselves. He was like, all right, leave it with me. And within 24 hours, he calls me. He was like, Deborah's read the script. She loves it. I'll send you her contact details. We went out for dinner and something that people might not be aware of is that when actors are at a certain stage or profile, depending on the, the job as well, the level of job, but particularly short films, you can't audition them. It's, that it's a straight offer or that's it. Again, because of the level of actors they are, there is nothing to question about ability. For me, I need to know that you understand this story and that you believe in this story. And like passion is unquestionable because the short film, you don't need this. It's not because of the money you're doing this. But do you get this? And me and Deborah went out for dinner. And honestly, I felt like I was in therapy. And I'm like, how do you understand this story so much? Like, Why are you seeing stuff that I didn't put on the page and you can get it? And so that was how that came together. And they were and slash have been and continue to be an absolute dream to work with. Like, I remember she said to me, um, you are going to make a feature of this, right? And I was like, uh, I wasn't planning to. And she was like, well, you need to because that's why I wanted to be a part of it. And so, yeah, it's that's that was the process. It's very exciting. It is very exciting. So when did you first feel like a writer? I've never said this as I'm about to say it. And it's going to be one of the most cliche things I've ever said. But I don't think I've ever not felt like a writer. What people normally ask me is, when did you decide you wanted to write? Which is a totally different answer. It's like 19 or 20 or something. But I have always felt like a writer in that I've always loved words. I never felt like I was a great writer or I was going to be a professional writer. But when I was in school, I remember in year six being really excited because I knew that day was the day when we were doing the paper, which was creative writing. And because you've done so many practice papers, you know what the options are going to be. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait to write a letter. Fictional letters, <laughs> going to no one. That's what I was excited to write. In school, I loved all the essay-based subjects. If you ask my friends, I write really long text messages. I write really long emails. You've received them. Like, for me, that's why I'm like, I've always been a writer. Like, I've always known I was a writer in terms of my relationship with written words. Yeah. I actually heard that you have a tattoo which says, my only limitation is myself. And you also said that um, you would like to get the scripture Ephesians 4.1, which is a Bible scripture, which says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Have you got that tattoo yet? You really know about me, innit? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, how do you know this stuff? Um, the second <laughs> tattoo, I've not got it. And I 100% will get it. 
I need someone to design it for me. Like, I know where I want it to go. Where do you want it to go? I want it to go on my wrist. I'm left-handed, so I want it to go on my left wrist. But the thing that makes it complicated, and this is the part which I need to get my head around slash deal with a designer, is I want it to be on a typewriter. So on the page of the typewriter, I want the Bible verse to be on there. And it's either I compromise and just put Ephesians 4.1, or do what I would want to do because I love words, is have the actual words on there. But also there's something quite beautiful, I guess, in having the Bible verse because, of course, someone will see it and ask me, what is that Bible verse? What does it mean? But yeah, I don't have the tattoo yet. Maybe this year I'll finally do it. The reason why I mentioned that is because you said that you've always felt like a writer. Mm. But those scriptures and that quote refers to it being like a calling for you. Mm. And I guess some people think that writing is a learnt skill or a learnt craft, but some people think you just can write or you can't write. Where are you on that spectrum? I think it's a learnt skill. You think so? Don't get me wrong. I think there is such a thing as innate talent and innate ability. And I do believe to an extent I have that. But I went to a school which, I mean, it was a grammar school. So everyone was intelligent. And so you've got a group of intelligent students. And then in those intelligent students, you've got the bottom, the middle, the top, and so on. And Wherever you fall on that, you're intelligent in society, but there's another level of that. And I wasn't top, I was probably in the middle somewhere. And so, to me, when everyone used to tell me in school, oh, you really write well, blah, blah, I was like, everyone can write. Like, what, you know? And so, maybe I'm now contradicting myself, because maybe it's just because of this bubble I was living in that I think everyone can write. But I also just, I don't want to say it's not difficult, because it is difficult, but I just think it can be learnt. Like, I heard a quote some years ago from... I was in a workshop and it was by a writer called Rick, uh, Rickle, Ricky Beadle Blair. And I don't know it word for word, but Ricky said something along the lines of everyone can write and everyone has at least one story to tell. That is why I say everyone can write because we all have a story to tell and it might not be your own story, but there's something that you need to tell, that you need to say, that you need to get out of you. And it helps if, you have some sort of innate ability for it. But also, yeah, I've been writing for, well, I've been writing in terms of pursuing it as a career for 12 years now, maybe 13. And I know how much better I've become over that time. And that is because of the dedication to the craft and getting better at it. And I, I tell people about anything you want to do in life, I always compare it to the gym. I always say, if you go to the gym once a week, you will see the results over a period of time. If you go three times a week, you'll see the results. Like no matter what, as long as it's consistent, you will see results. And I think writing's the same thing. Okay, okay. I get your point. I get your point. So has there been a time where you've ever wanted to give up? What's kept you going? Because you mentioned that you've been writing or pursuing a career in writing yeah. for quite a long time. Mm. Has there been any hurdles in your way? There's been more than one time, but the most significant time was... 2015, 2016, around that period was the most significant time where, so I did my first degree, which I dropped out of, which was in international politics, and I went and did a second degree in creative writing. Is that worth people's time, by the way? No, but I really enjoyed it, but it's not. I know people like go look at my CV and then think, oh, he did that, that's why I should do it. I'm like, no, 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 don't do it. I did it because there was a loophole. And the loophole meant that I didn't pay any fees. I had like, I have no student loan for that degree. It was all grants and bursaries and it was the final year that that loophole existed. And it was also a part-time degree and that's why I did it. If it was full-time, I would have never done it. Why is it a waste of time? I wouldn't go as far as it's a waste of time. I just think there's so many resources 
and free resources, whether it be online, whether it be, you know, signing up to one of these courses at a theatre which are free or you can get bursaries or significantly cheaper. That's why I don't think it's worth it because I tell people all the time, the best way you are going to learn, nothing will be doing. Throughout my whole degree, I was writing more than probably anyone on my course because I wasn't working, I was just writing. My spare time was spent writing and it was I was in two evenings a week. Right, 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 right. That's why I got better. So I just completed the degree and not too long after I was kicked out of my family home. If you'd asked me what was the plan upon completing my degree, it was give it a year, probably going to be where I want to be writing-wise. I'm going to get there in my career. So and, just to, before you continue, no, no, when you got kicked out of your family home, was yeah. that to do with your career choices or was that more, more personal reasons? It's impossible to say that it wasn't indirectly the cause. I think in some shape or form it was part of the cause. But life and human emotions and feelings are quite complicated and complex because in the same breath, people often incorrectly assume, not because of that story, but just because I'm black. <laughs> they assume that, oh, it must have been really hard for you. Like, you know, your parents probably wanted you to do this and that and you weren't supported. I was like, no. I've My mum always said to me from childhood, right, all I want you to do is be happy. Do whatever makes you happy. Like, I remember when I was picking my GCSE options and I picked food tech, business studies and music because those are things that I found fun. And I remember showing it to my mum. She's like, yeah, okay. Like, she didn't care. Like, literally, do what you want. You happy? Wicked. Go have fun. But then, on the other hand, I know that those choices, especially coming from a single-parent household, being the eldest of three children, at least on that side of the family, there's this level of expectation of, you know, what you're going to do to support the household. Also, having dropped out, of course, and had I not dropped out, I'd have completed my degree and gone very quickly into a career in either finance or law, which was, yeah, it was very much on the way because I'd done internships and placements and had had verbal agreements as a result of those. So I think in some ways it must have had an effect. It wasn't the direct reason, but it definitely played a big part. Yeah. So you were saying something else before I asked about that. 2015, 16, wanting to give up. Yeah. yeah. Is um, there anything else that made you think, hmm, I want to pursue this writing career? That period was the one because... It was no longer about whether I believed I could achieve it or not. It was about survival. Like, I'm just like, I've not got anywhere to live. I'm sleeping on people's couches. Maybe I just need to sack this thing in and just get some stability. Like, my mind was all over the place. And you have to change your structure. So if that means, oh, you only have time to write two or three or four pages a week compared to what you're able to write before, that's okay. That's cool. Once I got over that, and figured out a new set of structures for my career. That's what the last, I don't know, seven years have been, seven, eight years have been continuously changing the structure to align with whatever I needed to support my writing. Because that's what it's, you know, I remember one of my really close friends saying to me, I always find it interesting the things that people observe in you, which you don't see until people say, oh yeah, that is quite true. And her name's Ronke, and she said to me, that the thing that she admires about me most is that in everything I do in life, the question I ask myself is how would this impact my writing? And this is from where I choose to live. <laughs> this is from 
am I going to go to this party tonight? <laughs> like, whatever it is, I'm just like, how is this going to impact my writing? And it has its negatives, unfortunately. But, yeah, we continue to figure life out every day. What would you say those negatives are? How much time I can give people. That was a huge problem last year. You know, I'm very fortunate and very blessed to be so entirely loved by so many people and unfortunately I also love those people so much like everyone who knows me knows my friends are my life like in times like last year where I just felt like I had so much to do and felt this really big I guess pressure and anxiety of what I wanted to achieve and not enough hours in the day and whatnot well I mean first and foremost I just ran away out of the country <laughs> I decided I wanted to be a nomad yes which, you did that yeah I did yeah. where did you go I went to Athens for a month in April and then from Athens I flew to Seville for a month and the only reason I came back was to shoot the film and then the film got delayed and then there was a family emergency and then the film there was no date that was concrete so the delays kept happening and my plan is, again, once this is done, to carry on my nomad life. That's the ambition. Why? What's the reason <laughs> What's the reason behind it? Do you think that you work better isolated from people? or like, what's well, I the... do thought I work better isolated from people because if you're not physically here, nobody's upset that you're <laughs> not seeing them. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's it. No one can entirely understand the level of busyness and it's not malicious like not only is it not malicious it's from a place of love and equally vice versa whilst 90% of the time I'm disciplined there's a the 10% when I give in and I'm like and then I'll beat myself up about it in a, a few weeks later because I see how much of a domino effect it's had giving that time away when I should have committed it to my work and you know I think in the long term I have to figure out a way to work that out and I think it's just going to be a balancing act of going away, coming back, going away. I read a book this time last year called Deep Work and that really transformed the way I thought about it. I think there's like four key ways of doing deep work and the one that really resonated with me was, I don't know which of the psychologists it was, whether it was Freud or whoever, but they talked about how this person lived in Switzerland, I think it was, and for however many weeks or months, they would go to like a property like a cottage or whatever in the forest be alone for weeks and weeks and weeks and just do what they needed to do and it was because they understood the way they worked which was they needed human interaction because of how much you get from that how much it makes you think the interrupt just information and inspiration but they also needed time to be alone to then think about this in a deep way and process it and then put it down on paper and I think a version of that is what I will do in some capacity. It also allows me, therefore, to be a better person to my loved ones. Like, we finished shooting on Thursday, and I, I've seen so many of my friends since Thursday, and it's only Tuesday today. And it's that because I'm like, okay, I can finally breathe. I think it's really interesting because certain careers require you to do or have different disciplines or mm. be away or come back. Are you worried that that could impact your relationships or friendships as you get busier and as you have more films to do, as you have more TV shows? Have you thought that far ahead? Absolutely. Absolutely have thought about it. Absolutely am aware that it has the potential to. And all I can say is I can't spend any time worrying about what hasn't happened, but also I'm very aware of what could happen. And all I can hope for is that my loved ones continue to understand me but equally, because it's a two-way street, I have to continue to consciously communicate better and also action as well. Like, make sure that 
I am doing the things that I should be doing so that people can, you know, feel that from me and feel feel what it is. But I know my friends will always love me, so to speak. And we go through phases and, and I always think it won't be like this forever. Although my best friend, who now no longer lives in the country, has moved to New York. But he said something to me about two, three years ago when I was complaining about how busy everything was. And he said to me, Abe, you do realise this is the least busy it's ever going to be. It's not going to get easier. Like, it's just going to keep getting busier and busier. And all you can do and have to do is figure out how to make it work because it's not going to get easier. I guess that's what I'm continuing to do is figure out how to make it all work together. How would you say LA changed your life? And if you could just explain to us what happened in LA, Mm. why you went there, how long you went for? Went to LA for five weeks in February slash March 2019. That story begins in October 2018, where a good friend of mine who's called Dream Hampton, who is... I really love her name, Dream. Such an amazing name. Dream was like, Abe, like, why have you never been to LA? Like, you love traveling. I don't understand why you've never come. I was like, "Eh, you know, I'm sure I'll come one day. Like, my work will bring me there. And Dream said to me, Abe, if you were in LA, I would get you work yesterday. You need to be in LA. That's what it's about. Do you know what? Tomorrow, let's go for a drink. And let's talk about this. Meet up with her the next day. And we're talking. And Dream's one of those people who often whilst you're talking to her, she's multitasking on her phone. And it's not that she's being rude. She's hearing everything she's saying to you and she's talking to you and whatever. And so she's like trying to sell it to me. Like, in fact, she's not even selling it to me. She's decided I'm doing this thing. She's like, okay, so this is when you're going to come. You need to come for this length of time. You can (laughs) stay with me. Blah, 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 this and that. And then towards the end of this she shows me something on her phone and she's been messaging someone who was a Netflix showrunner at the time called Cheo Coca Cheo um, was the creator of Luke Cage and this is roughly what the message has said hey Cheo I want to introduce you to my friend Abraham he's coming to LA in month I've not even said yes he's coming to LA <laughs> in Feb um, I want to introduce you because he reminds me of you and I'd love you to read his work and Cheo's like, yeah, sure, tell him to hit me up and I'll absolutely meet him when he comes. And Dream says to me, like, if that's what I can do through a text message, imagine if you were there. Like, LA is the kind of place you need to be there for things to happen. But I was broke. I was, I was still struggling. And I just said to myself, you know what? Find a way to make it work. And Air New Zealand used to do, on Black Friday, this deal where they would release a hundred flights on different routes. So London to LA, London to New York, and I can't, and obviously New Zealand and Australia. And I think the flight was £250 return to LA. And I was like, okay, cool. That's step one. I need to make sure I get that Black Friday deal. And I did. So I got my flight for 250 And I just put whatever money I could aside along the way. And I ended up getting to the airport, had £700 in my account, not knowing how the hell I was going to make it through LA. Spent £100 in the airport because I realised I hadn't bought travel insurance. And of all the places in the world that I do not want to be without travel insurance, it's America. (laughs) And I just trusted God, man. I was just like, yeah, there's a reason why I'm meant to be going on this trip and I'll make it through. And I remember like, yeah, this is what I mean about my friends being my people. Like, I remember at some point whilst I was out there, Zach Momo, who I'm, yeah, I've mentioned him whilst we've been recording. He was like, how's it going? This and that. He's spent a lot of time in LA, so he knows it well. And I'm like, yeah, man, it's cool. Just, this place is hella expensive, man. Like, you know, don't know how I'm going to make it to the end of this trip, but 
where there's a will, there's a way. Next thing, Zach sent me money. And I'm like, oh, bloody hell, man. Like, and the trip itself was just, it was so inspiring. One of the key things that kept coming up in the trip was that people kept asking me why I don't direct. And this is something that people have asked me in, in the UK. Why aren't you directing? I, I had never wanted to direct. I didn't go film school. And the reason I didn't want to do it is because of the barriers to access. So I'm black boy, single parent home, working class background. If I wanted to become a filmmaker, I, there are two routes to take to do this. One is to go to film school, which is a master's. So you can't get a student loan or whatever. You have to fund that yourself, however it may be. Alternatively, it's self-teaching. Now, in my very particular circumstances, which I was in, which was survival mode, film school obviously wasn't an option. And I also did not have time to self-teach. Any free time that I had was spent writing. Like, I was just writing. And so now I can look back and, and see it. And I was like, yeah, that's why I didn't do it. But if I had the resources, I would have done it. Like, and when it was coming up in L.A., I'm just like, okay, people have been saying it to me in London. They know me well. These people barely know me and they're seeing the same thing that all these people are seeing in London. Maybe this is something I should think about. And at the same time, there was a screenwriting competition with um, screenwriting competition with Soho House, which at the time the competition was only open to members, but now it's open to everyone. It used to be called Script House. Now it's called Soho Shorts, I believe. The competition required you to write a 10-page short film and that was it that's all you had to submit you didn't need to submit a treatment and that's unusual most things want yeah a lot of stuff the theme was time and there was no criteria like experience blah 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 this and that but the one rule in there which nearly turned me off it was whoever writes this script also has to direct it if they win and I remember reading this and I'm like okay do you know what I'm just going to submit anyway because there's no chance I'm going to win and I'm like okay what do I want to write here? And I was like, okay, I've got this short film idea, which I've had for a few years now, and I've told people about it, and no one really gets it. And but I was always convinced that this story was good. I'm like, this, like, it's just people don't understand it. It's really, really good. And so I wrote that. And that was one of the things that came out of LA, just being in that space and being inspired, and not being inspired in terms of getting an idea, but having the confidence to submit to that competition also the level of focus that I had because in those five weeks I'm just like I'm here to make it like that is what I've come here for like I'm here to change my life and I came back with it was the thing that I didn't know I needed and yet I got it in bucket loads which was the validation where people just couldn't understand they're reading my work and rating it so highly and not understanding why things haven't got to where they think it should have got to for me in the UK. Around a week into coming back, and just by coincidence, I was approached to write a full-length play, and that happened. And yeah, that was that was the LA trip. Yeah. It sounds like it was a very pivotal part Absolutely. to your career so far. Mm. Who would you like to thank for your success? God, always. God, always. Um, my friends, um, I think that's blatantly obvious anyway my friends my loved ones like they've lifted and carried me and continue to carry me there are two specific people or there's probably more than two but there's two specific people I have in my mind for very different reasons and one is my mother and that's because I think the most significant thing my mum has ever done in my life is 
my mum was always convinced I was smart. And for I for however long I can remember, this woman was obsessed with the idea of me going to a grammar school. I didn't know what a grammar school was. I had to do the 11 plus and I, she couldn't afford to get me a tutor or anything like that. Again, I'm oblivious to, now I'm an adult and I know people get tutors for these things, but she couldn't afford a tutor. She bought me like a, some practice papers from WH Smith. And of course I did the test and I passed and everything. But going to that school was transformative for me, being in such an environment and the things that it instilled in me as a person. And I'd also found my uncle, which is my mum's brother. That's because my uncle is the eldest of their siblings and he's a doctor. And my mum and all her siblings were born here, but raised in Nigeria. And then they all came back individually in their own time. My uncle was the last one to come back. I remember like as an adult, just one day realising, I went, uncle, how the hell did you do this? I don't understand how you came back to London and you became a doctor and you had zero support. There was no, and obviously things are different now compared to then. But it still stands that I don't understand how you did this. And this was, that's the only doctor I ever knew in my in my childhood, my uncle. And that was always inspiring for me to see this person who was just such an excellent man. So, yeah, God, my friends, my mum, my dad. Well, I didn't say my dad, but now I have. <laughs> Thinking about uncle, Freudian slip. <laughs> my dad too, big up him. <laughs> We've got a good relationship. We didn't always, but we do now. And he's done his part in my journey as well, for sure. And also my score as well, my score. And my basketball coach, Michael. It is my experiences of playing basketball and the level that I played it to and, and the level of improvement I had over a certain period, which makes me believe what I believe about how if you put your mind to something and do all the cliche things they say, <laughs> that you can become better at it. Yeah. What about No More Wings? Would you like to thank that as a catalyst to your success as well? No more wings changed my life. There's no two ways of looking at it. Um, I missed out a person, but I can't even say why I'm thanking them. <laughs> but <laughs> her name is Ariel Bruce, who's a woman I used to work for. I can't express how much that changed my life. Like the, the clearest way of explaining it is made the film in August 2019 finished making it, went back to my three different jobs. One was working as a cover supervisor in secondary schools. The second one was working in a theatre bar. And the third one was doing admin for a social worker, who's Ariel, that I just mentioned, to it getting selected for Tribeca Film Festival in January, to Tribeca getting cancelled because of the pandemic. So yeah, we should thank Tribeca as well because it got cancelled, but they decided that they still wanted to hand out the awards because they knew it would change the filmmakers' lives. And I remember saying that email and being like, oh, man, I'm so happy for whatever filmmaker's going to win that. Like, it will change their life. And that's so thoughtful of them, having no clue it was going to be me. And as a result of its success, in the middle of a pandemic where I lost all three of my jobs, I was able to go fully full-time and that's been my life since for coming up to three years now I've been a full-time writer and director wow yeah so yeah thank you no more wings thank you Tribeca <laughs> <laughs> thank you to five judges as well <laughs> and thank you Abiola Rufai my producer so whose career would you say you're jealous of oh good question when I look at film and TV there's like little pieces from people's careers where I'm like, oh, I want to do that, I want to do that. But there's no one who has had the career which is exactly what I envisioned for myself. No one. 
Not no and no, not exactly. The closest person that I can think of is my mentor. But even with him, I mean his name's Jesse Armstrong. He created Succession and Peep Show and I look at Jesse's success and I said this to him when I first met him. And he went and at this point he was already my mentor. And I said to him, I was like, when you got assigned as my mentor, the thing that made me so happy is that for so long I've had many people who have served in a mentoring capacity and have carried me through and supported me and given me advice, but there hasn't been anyone who I look to and I'm like, they've achieved the things that I want to achieve. And, you know, Jesse's won Golden Globes, Jesse's won Emmys, Jesse's won BAFTAs. I don't think he's won an Oscar, but he's been nominated for one. And he's British. And yes, he's not black British and neither is he from London. But the point is, he is successful on a global scale and he currently has one of the biggest shows in not even just America, the world. And so I look at that, but that's one part of the things I want to do. But then if we're talking about directing, Jesse isn't directing. Equally, if you think of the kind of stories I want to tell Jesse, some of them are like the work I want to tell, some are not. And so that's why I say it's really hard for me because there isn't one person. But I could, if you ask me for like a bunch of people, I can name people who, they inspire me for this, for that, like... One of the people I will often reference for two key reasons, and it's funny because it came up, I don't know what day it came up, at some point in the last couple of days, and they were like, even now, and I was like, hey, I'm talking about the work, not the person. <laughs> not because I'm separating the work from the art or yeah. whatever, but it's because I wanted to make it clear the very specific person. It was Woody Allen, and I said, Woody Allen has, for 40 plus years of his career, made a film every single year up until like four or five years ago. And I said, that is incredible to me. As someone who likes, not even likes, loves writing, who can come up with stuff that quickly. That is amazing to me. And I, I would love to have that. Equally, I love the dialogue he writes. But this is what I mean. Like with different people, there's different facets. John Singleton I love because Boys in the Hood is one of my favorite films ever. Like, but yeah, jealous of? It, that's hard. That's hard. <laughs> I was going to say maybe Kanye West, but it's what I mean. It's not in my field. And also Kanye is another subject as well. So, yeah, yeah, he is. <laughs> so we move to the next section, yeah. which is basically called writing rituals. Okay. So we're going to talk more about the craft mm. and the discipline of writing. Okay. And I know that you are someone who believes that creativity takes time, that you can't rush it, you can't rush the process. Correct. And that you also mentioned that being able to be a creative full-time or write whenever you want, is a privilege, mm -hmm. especially for underrepresented people. Correct. So I want to talk to you more about that and also the things that you do. Okay. So the first question is, where did your confidence in writing come from? I've always been confident. <laughs> That's the one, not just writing in anything. Mm -hmm. I think it came from either, maybe I was born with it, maybe it's what my mum instilled in me, my man and dad actually, and maybe it was my school. Those are the places where I think of and associate confidence with. Do you write to music or without music? Almost always to music, but sometimes I write in complete silence. Okay. Why is it sometimes music and sometimes not music? The further I am into the process, the easier it is to write to music. But in the early stages when I'm still figuring things out, sometimes I need either silence or lo-fi music or jazz FM to figure things out in my head. But... There are definitely times when I'm like, I just need complete silence to be able to figure this out. I get what you mean. When I have deadlines, mm. it depends if I'm stressed or if I'm not stressed. Yeah. So if I have a deadline for like an article at work, yeah. sometimes I'll put music on mm. and it'll maybe be, I don't know, Afrobeats or yeah. sometimes a bit more fast-paced and I'll be like yeah. dancing while writing. Yeah. But sometimes I need the more, yeah. more slow, mellow music or sometimes I just need silence. Yeah. 
So For me, silence is when I just, when I know that it's going to be a big battle of something to overcome to get to the bit when I can feel like I'm flowing. You speak a lot about that point from being frustrated mm. and having your idea and then flowing. Because I don't think people talk about that process of, you know you need to write something, but mm. it takes you a while to get to that point of actually writing. Mm. How have you navigated that space? I don't think that space exists for me anymore. And I say that because I'm always working and I'm always coming up with ideas that I don't have time to write. And so all that actually happens is I now have time. This is an idea I want to work on. But I started a new script today and that was an idea I came up with three or four months ago. I've still been thinking about it. Now I've found the time to write it, so I'm writing it. But if that idea wasn't yet here where I need it to be, I'd have just picked a different idea, which is there. So a version of that space and navigating it is maybe the development stage of any piece. And that's probably what I'm referring to when I'm thinking of the difficult times when I need focus and silence. And... That is exactly how I navigate it. It's one, silence, two, choosing my working environment well, because I, I choose between either working at home or working in my, I've got a co-working space that I'm working. I can only go into the co-working space if I'm in that period where I know I completely get this because every now and then someone's going to see me, they come talk to me, I'm going to chat, blah, blah, blah. And I can handle that when I'm already in the space because then I can just plug in and out like nothing. If I'm at the point where I've got something to tackle, I need hours on end of nothing. Like my phone's in a different room. There's no music. Like it's just me sitting there. The thing I would sometimes do is set a timer and just be like, just write freely for whether it's by pen or on the laptop and answer this question or this statement or this, uh, is it impetus? That's the word. Yeah, like something. So could you talk to us a little bit more about your creative process? You've spoken a little bit mm. about it already. How have you become so disciplined in your writing craft? Because you sound very disciplined. Like even I've yeah. learned a few things that I can take away as well. Yeah, um, I used to play basketball. I still go to the gym. Those are the things. It's For me, I just took the framework of that process and applied it to my writing. If there's no discipline, you're not going to get there. Like, I don't know what anyone wants to hear. I can't, there's not a nice way or a kind way of telling <laughs> anyone that. The discipline is what separates the people who do get there and don't get there. So do you believe in writer's block? How can I not? I don't get it, but I, I don't get writer's block, but I 1 million percent believe it exists. It depends how you define writer's block. Because I say I don't get writer's block. I don't get writer's block because there's always something to be writing. If this one's frustrating me, I'm moving over to that one. So how do you normally start a script? Do you normally have an intro already in mind? Or especially for people that are trying to get into screenwriting, mm. how do you start a script? What things do you need to do before you actually get to that writing stage? There's no set way of doing it. And I do different things every time. I never do it the same way, or at least not knowingly and intentionally. I would say to people that I can start writing a story, a script, if I know the beginning and the end. As long as I know that, I can figure it out all along the way. I do not advise that. I rarely ever do it anymore, but I am capable of doing that. What I will typically do, it starts in that process of when the idea first comes. And I've got a folder in my phone, which is, and it's linked to all of my devices, which is called writing ideas. So the moment I get an idea, it's going in the writing ideas folder. If I get to the point where we go from idea to I really want to write this, 
now a new folder is created, which is the name of that idea. So, for example, the thing I started writing today is called Rhapsody. Um, I only came up with the name today. I I had names which I didn't like, but that came today. So Rhapsody. So I, there's a folder for Rhapsody. And the moment I want to write that idea, now there's a folder. And anytime I think about anything for Rhapsody, I just put things in that folder. Create note, new note, new note, new note, new note. Sometimes, like you got with Chasing the Night, for example, you get a note which was written immediately because this idea just came rushing out of me and I'm just typing, typing, like... And practically, in my notes, more or less that whole story is in there. But I don't always get to that point where the whole story is in there. Sometimes it's just, this is the start, this is the end. Something interesting like Chasing the Night was, I came up with the story... And I, didn't, I hadn't decided who was going to be the man and who was going to be the woman. So I knew the storyline and the characters and what they were going to go through, but I had not decided. And I can't remember, there would have been something very specific which made me decide, okay, this person has to be the man and this person has to be the woman. But I just knew what I wanted to say. And sometimes that's what my notes are. My notes are what I want to say. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? What is frustrating me? The best thing to do is to write what is known as a beat sheet, B-E-A-T, and the beat sheet is essentially a very long document where you write out every single scene in your film or your TV show or whatever it is. And then once that's ready, you then start writing your script and you follow the beat sheet to write your script. And so people are often shocked when they hear how many pages I, I write a day. Typically I'll write, depending on my mood, I'll write 10, sometimes it's 15, sometimes it's up to 20. But I'm like, that happens because the beat sheet exists. Because once you have a beat sheet, you're just writing from a blueprint and you're just now adding the dialogue and adding the character names. And of course, even throughout that, you're getting inspired and thinking of new things. And I actually used to hate writing beat sheets. And part of me probably still dislikes it because I felt like it was ruining the fun because I'm like, <laughs> but then I can't be fun. In the, but actually there is still so much more, there's still so much fun to be had whilst you're writing the scripts. But yeah, keep thinking. When you think you've fought enough, put a beat sheet together and then start the script. Do you have any writing exercises that you do? I do. I have two sets of questions. One of them is 18 questions and one is 84 questions. And I do this for every single project I do. And they're questions about the characters. And so I ask these questions of my characters. 84? Like, yeah. The number 84, yeah. Did you come up with the questions yourself? No. So I was on the Royal Courts Writers Group and Alice Birch, our tutor, who is a fantastic playwright and screenwriter. She got us all, all 12 of us, to go around the room multiple times. And the, the prompt was a question you would ask someone to get to know them and to understand, to find out something about them. And so the questions are, how many siblings do you have? Do you believe in heaven? What shoes did you or would you wear to your father's funeral? Do you pay the, it's now 30p, but do you pay the 5p charge in Tesco for the, for the carrier bag? <laughs> like things like that, like just totally random yeah. stuff. And, and then at the end of it, she said to us the reason why we've done the exercise, which is these are a set of questions which you can ask your characters to get to know them better. And I've always said that, and I will do this one day, that I want to write a new set of questions, but I don't want to come up with them myself because contrary to what everyone assumes, I consider myself to be a lazy writer. I'm obviously really? not. Yeah, right. I'm obviously not lazy, but <laughs> I, you know, there are things which I'm like, oh, I can't bother. So rather than come up with a question myself, I plan to just get a group of friends together and get them to do that. <laughs> I'm just going to type all out and I'll have more questions. And then I'll now have, I don't know, my 18 and my 84 or whatever the number is and then who knows another hundred 
But yeah, that's what that's my writing exercise. I have other ones, but that is the key one. Okay. Um, the other one is really short to explain. Actually, it's simply just timed exercises, and it can be whatever you want it to be. It could be just write for ten minutes and just write whatever's in your head. It could be, you know, ask. There's certain questions I have written down in a notebook, and it's things like, "What does community mean to you?" or "What does this and stuff like that?" and just write into a time, and you do not stop writing until that timer goes off, even if you think you're writing gibberish. Um, what would you say is your favourite line from a TV show? So mine is when Wanda said to Vision, what is grief, oh, God. if not love persevering? I still think about it all the time. Yeah, but that's not fair, because that's mine. Oh, okay. I tweeted about it a, f- a few weeks ago. I'm not even lying to really? you. Really? That that, do you understand how... In- like? Let me tell you why that line is so incredible to me. So one of my closest friends and favorite human beings in the world is called Wendy and unfortunately Wendy passed away on February the 16th 2020 and fun fact is one year later on the way to go and visit her grave I get a text message in my group chat because my friend's daughter is born on the same day which is now my goddaughter wow and I had no idea she was going to be my godchild I was just I was just so blown away that on a day that was that has so much emotional weight to it in a negative way, God brought something into my life that now has, that day has a joy to it. And so when I heard that line, man, I just felt it in my soul. Like, it's just so poetic. Like, who would have, you know, Marvel are brilliant anyway, and I've watched everything, but who would have thought something so beautiful and so profound would have come out from a superhero show. And I always hesitate to quote it in terms of, I I hate getting quotes wrong. So I'm going to make you say it again because I'm like, (laughs) do I even remember the wording? But And I'm glad you said it before me because I probably wouldn't have said it. But the moment you said it, I'm like, that is my favorite. Like it is, it just tore me apart. Like I wasn't ready for it because of how much I knew I felt the meaning of that line. Mm. And for everyone who doesn't actually know who Wanda and Vision is, Mm. they're the two lead characters in WandaVision, which is an American television miniseries based on Marvel comics. Um, And if you haven't watched it, would highly recommend? I would highly recommend it. What would you say is the hardest part about being a black screenwriter, director, producer, playwright? Because you do all of those things. Mm. I call myself a retired playwright now, but I do do all of those things. Yeah, I wrote that in my notes. Retired. (laughs) (laughs) Right, people keep telling me I'm lying. (laughs) Well, I ain't written nothing. Anyway, the hardest bit about being a black well, let's say Black British, because I think that's very specific. Black British writer, director, producer, playwright. I think the hardest thing is, I know that these stories that we, not just me, we we are all trying to tell are excellent. Not all of them, but a lot of them. I know they have an audience. And the frustrating and difficult bit is having to prove that and having the question marks about whether this work will be received well whether this work will be popular whether we know like you can't tell me you understand our stories better than I do you don't like I'm I'm not saying you don't understand storytelling you do understand storytelling you probably do understand it better than me you do have a level of experience and whatnot that bit is not what I'm arguing you know I remember when we were doing No More Wings and what I'm about to say is not a slight or a disrespect to the person in any shape or form but there was like something that my editor had questioned and I don't even remember what it was but I put my foot down on it. I was like, no, that has to stay there. Like, trust me. And I remember him saying to me after, because we had the screening and that particular line 
got such a huge laugh in the room. And he, he was like, right, okay. Like, yeah, you, I'm like, yeah. Like, there's certain things which I know in a way you're not going to know. So, yeah, I think that is definitely one of the hardest ones. And also, again, I don't think about it too much, but the thought that if we allowed it, we would be led to believe that we're competing against each other. And we don't have to. There can be, there should be, and there will be enough space for all of us. This is the last section, yeah. and it's called Advice You Give. Okay. So this is a section where I would like you to share your top tips, even things you would tell your, you would have told yourself mm. when you first started out your writing career. Because I know you're also a big person who believes in being prepared mm. and being able to rise up to their challenge. Yeah. What advice would you give to other young black screenwriters or directors? And even because you feel, it seems like you, it's like the directing is almost like chasing you. Even though you're trying to move more towards the screenwriting, yeah. it seems like there's a lot of directing opportunities or just that yeah. you're doing both. Doing both. Um, which is what Ryan Coogler does as well. He yeah. does both. And yeah. he's mentioned that he never wanted to be a director. He wanted to I be a writer. He mentioned it at his David Lean lecture, the back well, of the one. Oh, okay. I need to watch that. I think, yeah, you're, you're definitely very similar in that yeah. he wanted to be a writer, mm. but the director just kept kept following him around. Yeah. So what advice would you give? <laughs> <laughs> I know. What um, advice would you give to younger you and also to other black writers who want to go down this route okay the first piece of advice i would give whether it be to myself or those younger writers is start writing i spent probably nine months saying that i wanted to be and was going to be a writer without actually writing starting to write a script and it took me meeting a filmmaker mo ali and telling him all these ideas and he thought they were brilliant. He was like, are there any scripts I can read? And I was like, no. And he goes to me, why haven't you written any scripts? And he said, yeah, everyone has ideas, but no one's going to take you seriously unless there's a script to read. That's how I started writing scripts. <laughs> um, so start writing is the, is the advice I would give both of those people, whether it be me or a young up-and-coming writer. As for the young up-and-coming writers, I would say read everything. And when I say read everything, I mean books, I mean articles, I mean, you know, there's a great app called Pocket. Um, I love that app. Oh, I love it, it's my favourite app. I use Twitter a lot and I see anything interesting on Twitter, I just save it into my Pocket so I can read in my own time. My Pocket has millions of articles I'm never going to read. But the point is there's always something there for me and I'll go have a look. And I say that people would be pleasantly surprised with how much they are absorbing of storytelling through reading and not just books. Books is the obvious one, but reading articles. Like, my mum will always tell people that from five years old I was reading newspapers. I don't remember that, but she says it happened. And I've always had a thirst for information and knowledge. And I know that informs my work. Read scripts because they're very easy to find on the internet. If you want to find the script for The Dark Knight, search the dark pdf and it will be on the first page of google and that's your rule to find 99 percent of scripts read scripts you'll understand the format you know that's how you learn the format of scripts by seeing what a script looks like even now whenever i'm unsure of how do i format this i'll just think of a film that i know has a scene like the scene i'm trying to write and then i'll find that script and look for whatever page it is i need to find that scene in and that's how i figure out how to do the formatting what else don't be afraid of criticism not even but don't be afraid go and find and welcome criticism i always say that part of why i can write 
really quickly is because I have never been afraid to be criticised. In fact, I love it because I just always say that anyone who I allow to meet, read my work, wants the best for me. And I'm not trying to make good work, I'm trying to make great work. Whatever I write is good. For it to get great, it requires work, it requires discipline, it requires fine-tuning. And it's often those people like Nelson, like Ify, like Femi, like Christian, my agent as well, who, my goodness, that man pushes me. Like, there's times when I think the script is finished, like, nope, it's not there yet, Abe, this, that, this, that, this, that. And when we finally get there, I'll be like, okay, fine, I get what you mean. But at the time, I was really <laughs> frustrated. But that's what you need, that people who are not going to stop until you have honoured that story you're trying to tell and made it the best you can be. And what a lot of people will ask is, well, how do I find an Ify and Nelson, you know, those are people who are writers or in the industry and whatever. I'm like, well, actually, Femi's my childhood friend. Nelson I met in university before either of us wanted to make films. Ify is someone who came to me and ended up being a mentee and is now alongside me. And my agent is obviously my agent. But the rule I give people is everyone has a friend who loves reading books. And that is the person who you should ask to read your scripts because anyone who loves reading books understands story. They understand when it works and they understand when it doesn't work. If they've always got a book in their hand, that is the person. Find your person who will read your stuff because that person will also be very excited to read it because they love reading anyway. And they will be able to, you know, just, I think the thing you have to do is, it's not just finding that person. You have to find that person who loves reading and is also unafraid to critique as well because there are people who love reading but they won't want to yeah exactly Uh, I really enjoyed that conversation with Abraham I think one of my biggest takeaways from this episode is the idea of writing your way into new opportunities. For example, if he never wrote No More Wings, he wouldn't be where he is today in his career. And I think sometimes as writers, we have these amazing ideas, but we never, ever write them. We just sit on them, we talk about them nonstop, but never put pen to paper. Let me know what you thought about this episode using the hashtag Podcast or find me on socials. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you have your own writing rituals you want to share? Do you have another way that you will start a script? Let me know and I'll catch you next time. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.